Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The provincial and federal governments in Canada carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous peoples in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. Around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help heal our relationship with the land and with each other. Today we have a bonus episode, including a recording from 2018 of Kate Doyle Griffiths and David Canfield discussing the West Virginia Teachers and Education Support Workers Strike. Kate Doyle Griffiths lives in New York and is a member of Red Bloom Collective. David Canfield is a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. We are sharing this recording now because of the current PC attacks on the school board and education in Manitoba. At the end of the recording, David and I, Posey, will be talking a bit about the relevance of this struggle for Manitoba teachers today, so stick around. The thing I think that's important to think about or to understand is that this strike actually started um, as a kind of wildcat. Um, the idea for the strike came about in a secret Facebook group, a, you know, a actually secret Facebook group, but one that had about uh, over 20,000 members, which is quite a lot when you consider that just over 23,000 people went out on strike. So almost everybody who went out on strike was part of this Facebook group for teachers, support, school support staff, and some public employees um, in the state. So uh, the and once people had proposed this idea for a strike, the unions, which which there were three involved in the strike, there was the AFT, the NEA, and the West West Virginia uh, Public Employees um, Union, which is just a a statewide union that represents the support staff at the school. Um, they all kind of fell in line behind this rank-and-file initiative um, for the strike and actually initially suggested a kind of escalating moderating tactic short of a strike, something like rolling walkouts um, and that kind of thing, which was sort of immediately rejected by strikers. That was already quite interesting. Um, after... Uh, uh, several days of that initial strike. Um, probably you guys recall there was a, a deal announced by the governor and the presidents of those three unions. Um, and all over our Facebook, all over your Facebook, probably you were seeing this, this deal as announced as a, as a victory because teachers had won. Teachers initially were demanding a 10% pay increase across the board for teachers for support staff, but also for all public, public employees in West Virginia, as well as a fix to the public employee uh, insurance fund, health insurance fund. Um, and the, the first deal announced by the governor, Governor Jim Justice, which I think is uh, really quite a name um, for a West Virginia governor, uh, was just a 5% deal, 5% increase for teachers, a smaller increase for uh, school support staff and an even smaller increase for public sector workers. So um, as that deal was sort of being announced as a victory by, you know, news media that was there and also by um, national level union uh, officials, um, I, I started noticing that there was a lot of West Virginia teachers commenting various places that they weren't sure that they were actually going to go back to work. So I was I was interested in that and decided to get on a plane basically that next morning and go down and see what was happening. And for me it was a it was an open question whether or not this really was had been a kind of wildcat initially or was a, was going to be a wildcat and what was going to happen because in the intervening time between the deal being announced um at which actually the, the it's worth saying that the the AFT president was booed off the stage apparently um so uh in the intervening time they had a kind of cooling off day and that was the day that I flew down there so um it was going to be that night that everybody voted to go back out 
Um, and I went down there as an organizer for the international women's strike. So one consequence of that was I got kind of directed to talk to the feminist organizers in West Virginia who were also facing um, something quite dramatic, which was two bills that were uh, essentially together would be a, a, a total ban on abortion in West Virginia. Um, so the first person I talked to was actually not a union person or a teacher, but uh, uh, somebody who worked for a, an NGO in West Virginia called uh, West Virginia Free, which is a reproductive rights, abortion rights NGO there. And the first, and she, she, you know, essentially works as a as a lobbyist for abortion rights in the state house. Um, and I thought it was very interesting that this first person I really talked to there, uh, the first thing she told me was that the strike was a strike against the union leadership and that uh, the union was quite upset and didn't quite know what to do uh, about the strike. So it was that was sort of very definitive in a way that seeing commentary from union folks on Facebook and people who are not in West Virginia uh, was not particularly enlightening. So I was very happy that I went down there. Um, uh, the following day was sort of the first day of the Wildcat at the State House. And so one thing that's interesting to, to know about the way that the strike was organized was that every day there was hundreds and sometimes thousands of teachers in this tiny little West Virginia State House. And I think that's one of the reasons that teachers were able to kind of bypass, uh, you know, a sort of recalcitrant union leadership and that because they could directly really talk to the state legislators and the governor. It's this small little state house and everybody's kind of wandering around in the same uh, place. And it was a number of different times the, the governor got kind of directly confronted by crowds of teachers um, who were sort of, you know, really directly negotiating with him. And that was a pretty exciting thing to see. But so you had all these people in the state house, and then you also had picket lines at the schools in all these counties, which West Virginia is not a very big state, but it's also not a very easy place to get around. So you had people that were kind of driving hours um, back and forth between picket lines and the state house. And that was, that was interesting to see. Um, it seemed to me from talking to people that a lot of that was remained coordinated from through Facebook. So even though, uh, you know, things got started out in Facebook and then kind of got brought into organizing in individual schools, a lot of things still took place on Facebook, including even some of the votes um, when people were still voting day by day to keep, to keep the strike going. Some of the votes were actually taken on Facebook Live um, for schools where people couldn't have public meetings or didn't want to have public meetings. Um, so that I thought was very interesting. And it's something that we're seeing develop in now the other places where these kind of teacher strikes are Red for Ed uh, movement is, is continuing. Um, you know, hopefully everybody is keeping your eyes on Oklahoma is the next to go out. Um, I can tell you a little bit more about what's going on there after I tell you about West Virginia, um, but it looks like Kentucky also is possible. And of course, there's been some rumblings and demonstrations and so forth in Arizona. And if you if you watch what's happening on Facebook, there's a lot of discussion between West Virginia teachers and Oklahoma teachers and West Virginia teachers and Kentucky teachers um, on on Facebook, and it's it's really. Uh, quite interesting to watch. Also, Twitter um, is another place where people are having, you know, not just kind of discussions about how to organize, but really debates about what kind of demands were acceptable. Um, and that kind of like public debate on social media, I think, really made it difficult for um, put, more, put more radical demands in a position to gain traction, I think. And that was an exciting and interesting thing. The other thing I found out when I got there, which I wasn't 100%, I hadn't realized, I guess, um, is that there had been a strike in 1990, a previous statewide strike. So one of the most important things about this West Virginia strike is that it was a full statewide strike, um, which we haven't seen in some time. And uh, that is something that had previously happened in 1990 when the initial cuts to the public health education fund went down. Uh, people immediately went out on strike at that point, and they didn't succeed in winning a reversal to those cuts. They su succeeded at that time in getting a task force to try to solve the PEIA problem, which obviously wasn't solved over the last 28 years because people are back out. Um, a lot of the people, many not a lot, but some of the people who are out on strike now were out on strike then. Um, I met one teacher who uh, had been a long-term substitute in the early 
in her first week of teaching who had gone out in 1990 and she actually brought a long-term sub in her first week of teaching out to this picket line. Um, the fact that there was people there who'd been out on strike before meant that, uh, you know, um, people had something to compare it to in terms of why this was a stronger, going to be a stronger strike and how to make this a stronger strike than the last one. The main thing that people talked about there was that the school support staff went out on strike. And in 1990, that didn't happen. They didn't, the school support staff didn't cross picket lines the last time. Um, but in terms of being able to declare a school shut down, which was the really exciting part, right? You know, the, the first night of the Wildcat, every bar in downtown Charleston had a map of the school districts um, by county up, and if they were shut down, they would turn red. So you're watching this kind of like watching election returns come back from a presidential election or something like that. It was very exciting. Um, and that, you know, once, <coughs> if it's just teachers going out, uh, you need a certain a certain number of teachers to say they're not coming to, to have the school be declared sort of un, unsustainably staffed or unsafe. Whereas, and a lot of schools are small enough that just having one cook not go or one bus driver say they're not going means that the school is going to be shut down. And so that was one of the things that made the strike um, particularly strong. Uh, there's there's some history there between the teachers and the school support staff in terms of um, union representation and the 1990 strike. Uh, and it was very interesting to see how people dealt with that in terms of the picket line. There was a lot of like visual unity between kind of different categories of workers. Um, there was a different color bandana for every category of worker. You had teachers were wearing red bandanas, um, school support staff were wearing yellow bandanas, and other public sector teachers were wearing blue bandanas. And so a lot of the visual imagery of the strike had all three of those colors. Um, you know, you had some Sabbath cats wearing different, all three different color shoes, and the politicians who supported them had badges with, which, with each of those three different colors. And I think that kind of uh, sense of unity across kind of different uh, kinds of workers, different categories of workers, is one of the things that really propelled, propelled people into staying out. They saw the idea of going back for a raise just for teachers as being a real um, slap in the face of the school support staff who'd gone out with them. A lot of teachers I talked to said that they would rather go without a raise than to go back without their school support staff having a raise. Um, that was almost universally what I heard. I, I didn't hear anything to the contrary of that, really, from teachers. Um, the other thing that this greater amount of unity, this shared strike between different categories of workers meant was that it created more capacity for people to take part in what I was calling social strike tactics, which I think also really expanded public support for the strike. Um, the one that got the most sort of uh, media traction was that um, teachers really saw uh, the strike as not just being about teacher pay, but about students and school funding um, and support for students. And of course, in West Virginia, something like 25% of students live in poverty as set by U.S. federal guidelines, which is a very low bar for poverty. Um, and uh, as a result, eat at least two of their meals at school on a daily basis. And so teachers really did not want the situation to be that a strike would keep students from being able to get food. So one of the things that they did was organize um, uh, meals for students, uh, for any student, um, during the during the strike, and in some cases even going so far as to like deliver food to people's houses if they weren't going to be able to come to the school or come to other the picket line in order to eat. So um, that was one of the things that one kind of bought a lot of goodwill, and I think also uh, um, was made possible really by the sort of degree, the high degree of unity that sort of went beyond just kind of not crossing picket lines into an actual kind of uh, social strike that, that, you know, reached out beyond the picket line rather than just kind of drawing that line in the sand. Um, so what else can I say about it? Oh, the other thing that I thought was really just anthropo anthropology-wise, uh, really like visually telling, I guess, about the strike is, you know, if you've been on picket lines where it's kind of a mobilization strike or a show strike and uh, union leaders or the people who have called people out 
Um, you often get the situation where everybody's kind of wearing the same T-shirt and it's like ill-fitting. Every, you know, everybody's wearing a size men's extra large red T-shirt from whatever uh, your union is. And this looked really different. Every single, the strike was really organized by school and by county. Sorry, we have New York noise in the background. Um, and every county uh, and school had, uh, some individual schools had designed their own uh, t-shirts which had, you know, their specific county by name, specific slogans for that county, and, you know, and specific visual imagery. And um, I sort of made it a habit to ask people you know, oh, God, I really love your T-shirt. Where'd you get it? And everybody would tell you, like, what printer they had used and how they got a great deal. And, you know, every school, every county had somebody whose job it was to organize the T-shirt printing. And so that gave me a sense of how kind of really uh, locally and intensely organized each of these little groups were. And people really moved around in their group by group by county as well. So you could see, um, uh, see see the organization at that level as well. Um, I think another interesting thing to say about it, I guess, um, is that, uh, and one thing that I, I think is worth thinking about as we wonder about these strikes kind of spreading, is that there was a lot of sense of, um, well, sort of contrary to the idea, and this keeps getting said about all these states, and I think we should think about it a little bit carefully that this is a this was an exciting development of a, a working class militancy in a red trump state um and i think that the picture is a little bit more complicated than that one because uh west virginia is um it's you know it's not it's not technically in the south right it's also not it hasn't been a, a fully red state very long um it has a long history of being a a Democrat state, and it has a long history of being split between the Democrats and the Republicans in terms of who's at the state state house legislature and who's um, in the governorship. And even the governor himself, Jim Justice, actually is a recent recent convert to the the Republican Party. So he was a Democrat until not too long ago. Um, and meanwhile, the kind of uh, representative of workers' voices in the state house, Richard Ojeda, who's kind of this left wing populist type, he actually voted for Trump. Um, he's since kind of moved to the left and, and renounced that position, but there's a lot of ambiguity about who's a Democrat and who's a Republican at the level of state politics and also among voters. People really have the sense of uh, the demands that people have, the demands of, of working class people as being sort of apolitical in some sense, and that's the thing that people will tell you, that this isn't about politics, and by that they mean it's not about party politics. Um, one, of, one of the things it is about, though, is kind of West Virginia state pride in their history, sort of militant union history. And a lot of people talked about um, the history of coal mines as being inspirational, history of coal mines, struggle in the coal mines as being inspirational for teachers. Um, and obviously, like, teachers tend to be kind of history nerds, so uh, probably, you know, overrepresented among the people who would look at things that way. Um, but it really was telling how many people would sort of tell you that unsolicited, tell you about, um, uh, you know, the Battle of Blair Mountain, tell you about um, uh, the coal wars in Mingo County um, as being inspirational for what they were trying to do. And also specifically multiple people told me about the red bandanas uh, that teachers were wearing, that this doesn't just represent um, red for teachers, uh, but it represents, uh, do I know the real history of redneck? And redneck, uh, according to them, and actually, as far as I can tell, this is historiographically accurate, started out as a term of, uh, as a pejorative term that coal bosses used to describe militant coal miners um, for, who wore red bandanas to show their their union affiliation and their radicalism um, and of course if you if you ask most people in the United States today what redneck means they would say it means uh, it's a white person whose skin is burned red from working in in the sun. Um, but it turns out that that's not actually true, and a lot of West Virginia teachers know that's not true and see the kind of red for ed as being a direct historical link to this coal mine militancy. Um, so, you know, I think where we're seeing a lot of these strikes spread have similar kinds of mixed histories, and it's worth thinking about that and about how that's going to play in states that are a little bit more conservative or red or, you know, truly the South. Um, 
but I guess we'll see about that. Uh, one thing, though, I think that all these places do share, and lots of places share, and places you know everywhere that have experienced um, cuts, education cuts, and austerity share is that the, the workers in those situations, the workers who are teachers, the workers who are school support staff, the workers who are public sector workers, are kind of facing. Um, pressure on all fronts and that's one of the things that I think is really motivating people to take this kind of dramatic strike action um, both in terms of their jobs where people have been uh, really facing um, you know an intensification of uh, surveillance and and bureaucratic documentation at work uh, along with you know wage cuts along with increased class sizes so there's a real kind of speed up taking place but also um, a sense that their jobs are becoming increasingly impossible because of the conditions outside schools that their students are facing and that they themselves are facing. And it's one of the reasons that I think a lot of this anger has gelled around the health insurance. Um, you know, for one thing, I mean, on just a basic level, the health insurance uh, went up to, for some people, $400, $400 a month and some people $800 a month, and those are people who are making uh you know, in the case of school support staff, 30, 30 grand a year or less than, and the case of teachers, you know, uh, 40, around 40 or a little bit more or a little bit less. So that's a pretty big, significant chunk of your take-home pay if, um, if that's what we're talking about. Um, and of course, a lot of these, a lot of teachers in West Virginia, many that I talked to are also second generation teachers, which meant that it's not just their health care getting cut, but it's their parents' health care getting, getting cut as well, um, with lots of retirees kind of going back to work at various ways to pay for their health care. And so you can start to see how the the pressure to reproduce, um, uh, you know, sort of what, what, I'm, what I would call social, the pressure of social reproduction is uh, sort of intensifying, it is particularly intense for teachers that are working in uh, paid aspects of social reproduction and then also um, pressured in their own families to support um, themselves and other people who are who are experiencing cuts in pay and health care. Um, um, interestingly, I think the the it, the specific kind of flash point that set off the strike um, was something called the the Go Three Sixty Five Preventative Healthcare Program, um, and this this was I. I I found out about this because I was standing in line and people were making jokes about Fitbits and I had to ask, like, what's up with the Fitbits? Um, but apparently there was this preventative health care program that got uh, installed voluntarily uh, where, and, and teachers took the voluntarily to be not very, they, didn't, they, they figured that was a prelude to, uh, to required because that is what they, two people told me that's what they'd seen happen with kind of voluntary aspects of their jobs as well, that you start out with this voluntary trial program, and next thing you know, it's a required non-trial program. So that's what they expected with Go365. The program was that um, teachers had to wear a Fitbit uh, to get a discount on their health care costs that were increasing exponentially um, and upload all their steps to this private third-party company uh, so this, their private third-party company could find out not, much, not just how much they were walking, but where they were walking, um, along with kind of like very intimate health details, like measurements of your body, your bust, your waist and hip, your waist to hip ratio was a big one. That if you had the right waist to hip hip ratio, you could save money on your healthcare costs. Um, along with uh, you know whether or not you've had a pap smear or a colonoscopy lately, um, and a lot of teachers pointed out that this was in itself a violation of the health privacy requirements in the United States, so HIPAA requirements. Um, and people thought it was really dehumanizing, insulting, uh, and upsetting, and that was actually the thing that kind of was the flashpoint for this strike anger. Um, and actually, that was one of the first things that, that was won. So um, the conclusion of the strike, uh, it was very exciting to be there for the four days kind of rolling up to the conclusion. Um, I, you know, I would say that they won, uh, particularly in the sense that they won and raises across the board, that they were really able to show that teachers going out on strike could win things for, um, you know, teachers and support staff could win things, not only just for teachers and support staff, but for all public employees. Um, I think, uh, I personally think that if they had stayed out, if they'd taken over the state house, if they'd escalated, um, it's possible they could have won more. Um, but I think people were, you know, 
not sure, right, whether or not that would work and not sure whether or not that their public support would hold and not sure whether or not unity would hold. Um, what they didn't get was uh, uh, funding funding for the health care. Part of that, too, was that I think being in the state house kind of um, sucked people into this sense that they had to solve the problem of where the money is going to come from for this funding and, 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 and to solve this problem before the the legislative session ended. And I think both of those are kind of illusory limits, but they seem very real when you're actually in the state house kind of operating in the logic of lawmakers. Um, and so those two things kind of put people, put pressure on people to go back without a definitive answer about the health care. Um, that said, people seem ready to, you know, ready and empowered, right, to take action again if the, those things are not in fact solved. Um, and I think the the sense that it was a victory has also been transmitted to other teachers. So what we're seeing in Oklahoma right now is that before the strike even starts, um, Oklahoma teachers rejected the kind of rolling walkout, de-escalating kind of measures that the AFT proposed. Um, and it's the same situation in Oklahoma. There's there's two or three unions involved. Um, certainly the NEA and the T. I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure about the third union. Um, but that the AFT again proposed rolling walkouts, teachers immediately rejected it. The AFT proposed a later strike date of April 23rd that would have put the strike after the kind of critical period of the semester. Teachers rejected that and set it for April 2nd. Um, and then the legislature actually just passed a, a, a funding bill that funded significant raises, $10,000 a year raises for teachers, seven and a half for other public school workers, uh, public sector workers, and something like uh, 2.5 thousand for school support staff, um, along with some uh, uh, some other um, funding measures, and the the Facebook group of rank and file teachers has already said that that's not adequate, and they still want to go on strike. So we're going to see if that is what happens. But it definitely gives me this sense that um, uh, the lesson of West Virginia, at least for other teachers, is that you should strike because you'll win more. <laughs> and uh, when they give you something, you should you should uh, go out because you might get more. So I guess we'll see if this actually does develop. I, it gave me a real sense of excitement that. Um, uh, that there was a lesson of, of victory, that there was a sense of unity, and that people had some uh, ability to kind of organize and communicate that um, across geographic distances, both within these states and uh, hopefully more broadly. So that's my that's my opening comment. I guess I'm interested in, in uh, what some some of your questions or ideas about this are. So what I want to do is uh, share five. Uh, thoughts about uh, what we can learn from this strike and think about here. Um, and the first one is that I think the, the West Virginia education worker strike actually vindicates a specific kind of politics, um, which I'd say you can call class struggle from below politics, uh, an approach to trying to fight for change by tapping the power that's there in the, the militant collective action of the working class. Now, by militant, I don't mean violent. Right? By militant, I mean assertive. Uh, and uh, I mean, it might be violent, but in some circumstances. But in general, what I mean by militant right, is about the assertiveness that people are willing to to uh, use the, the methods they're willing to to take up, and by working class, I don't just mean you know blue collar men or something like that. I mean everybody who sells their ability to work in exchange for a wage and doesn't have much management power, and also the people who aren't making wages but live in the households of of wage earners. Um, so the working class, in a broad sense, regardless of how much money people make. Um, and so this kind of politics, class struggle from below politics, uh, tries to build a mass social movement of the working class. And it understands that the places where we work for pay are an Achilles heel of capitalism. So when we withdraw our labor, we have a power to disrupt the way society functions that's, that's unique. Now, some groups of workers have more power to do that than others, but it's not just private sector workers who directly produce profit for companies that have that power, right? As we saw in West Virginia, uh, public sector workers can have that power too. And 
we saw with West Virginia that idea of all out, right? all 55 counties going out on strike together and striking uh, until they win, not striking to show you have a just cause, but actually striking to win. Um, that's really a, seeing what's going on as, as a real struggle. Um, and when I'm saying that this vindicates class struggle politics, I don't mean that this, I'm not trying to dismiss community-based uh, struggles by, by workers, like mass street protests or occupying a building against austerity, for example. Um, community organizing is important, but there's a unique power when we withhold our labor, and we saw that in West Virginia. And again, what we saw in West Virginia um, and that's so important for class struggle from below politics is the power of mass direct action. And sometimes those things get pitted against each other. You know, mass, like large numbers of people, and direct action, like actually action that is militant and disrupts the way things are, are happening. Um, but here you saw mass direct action, large numbers of people engaging in uh, struggle in a way that, that disrupted things. Um, so it wasn't like maybe the, the worst example of direct action I can think of is Many years ago at a University of Guelph in Ontario, a small number of students uh, padlocking themselves to the door of the library, <laughs> uh, thinking this would stop uh, tuition cuts, uh, tuition hikes. Um, and you know, the, the point is it's not about the militancy of a small number of people, but needing to have large numbers of people engaging in militant action. And that's also different from the idea of a passive mass protest that gets lots of people out, but where people don't actually do anything to disrupt. Now, of course, the working class is fragmented, right? There's many ways in which we're divided from each other um, along racial lines, along gender lines, between public and private sector workers and so on. But class struggle politics strives to forge unity uh, and to broaden out the struggle. So again, we saw in West Virginia, as Kate was saying, it was teachers and education support workers together, uniting members of three unions and lots of workers who were actually members of none of those unions um, in a common struggle. And the way that they demanded and won a 5% raise for all West Virginia public sector uh, workers and called for higher taxes on the, the, the natural gas companies, right, in West Virginia, in the wake of coal declining, natural gas has become important to the state economy. And of course, those, those gas companies are paying very low taxes. So the teachers were trying to come up with a demand, you know, fund the wages and, and the health care of, of the teachers and other public sector workers by taxing the, the gas firms. And as Kate mentioned as well, the way that strikers were preparing food for students who rely on school breakfast and lunch programs, that was a way of broadening out you know, the struggle and keeping those relationships there. And we saw as well with West Virginia that the idea of class struggle politics um, of asking not what's legal, but what works. Um, you know, is really important in terms of thinking about winning. Like, what do we have the power to do rather than what does the law say we have the right to do? Um, if they'd simply thought about that, they would, there would never have been this, this struggle. Um, and this kind of politics tries to ensure that the struggle stays under the control or is always under the control of the people engaged in the struggle. So real participatory democracy, the people engaged in the struggle determining how it's going to go, rather than having the struggle controlled by union officials or by NDP leaders, or for that matter, by a small number of radicals, right? The struggle has to be in the hands of people themselves. And the struggle is not a, something like a tap that union officials can turn on and turn off when they, when they want to. It's uh, something which workers themselves have to make the decisions about. And we saw in West Virginia how the course of the strike was fundamentally democratically determined. So this kind of politics that I'm calling class struggle from below politics, it's as different from the politics of class collaboration as night from day, right? So by class collaboration, I mean a politics where people think the goal is to try to sit down um, and figure out what the common interests are of uh, workers and employers. Um, that you, you know, that approach usually accepts the straitjacket that the law imposes on us in terms of how we how we struggle, um, and maybe thinks that the the only real legitimate way to make political change is in the, at the ballot box. So you hear this again and again, right, from the unions, union leadership, and, and NDP leadership, um, that that's the way to do things. Um, 
recently, or not, not that long ago, the president of the Manitoba Federation of Labor, Kevin Rebeck, you know, was talking about how he wanted to have a seat at the table with the Tories and Brian Pallister, right? Uh, and I remember Jeff saying, why are we asking for a seat at the table when we're on the menu? Uh, and I think that that sums up, you know, what we're, what we're dealing with here. Um, but this was a politics that was not about collaboration. It was fundamentally about, about struggle. But there's something else that is different. That class struggle politics from below is also different from a certain kind of radical politics that we sometimes run into, which talks a lot about class struggle, but treats radicals as the key players, instead of treating broad layers of working people themselves as uh, the key. Right? Sometimes even radicals get into this idea that they're pure and the rest of the, the masses are contaminated or something like that. Um, and it, it, this kind of politics makes the mistake about, um, when it comes to thinking about what's the key question for people who are anti-capitalist, the key question is not who's the most radical today, like who, does, who has the most radical ideas about capitalism or about oppression, and it's not also, it's not the question who's most ready to defy the law today. And sometimes those are good questions to ask, who's most radical or who's most willing to defy the law right now. But that's a, there's a different question, the question of who has the power to change society. I think that is the really the most important question for, for anti-capitalists. Um, and so, again, the kind of politics that we saw vindicated in, in West Virginia was, was a politics um, that didn't treat a small number of radicals as the people who are going to make the change. And I think there's actually a, a thing that both class collaboration and elitist radicalism have in common. And that is, they're what some people call substitutionist politics. In other words, they try to substitute the actions of a small number of people from the collective actions of working people themselves. So think about it, whether it's seeing a small number of union leaders as the key to making change, or NDP leaders, or a small number of radicals. Like in, in each case, thinking about what those people will do as being most important, rather than thinking about how can actually large numbers of working class people wage their own struggle for their own liberation. So um, some people might respond to this, you can't do that in Canada, right? Uh, you know, here, think about it. Most public sector workers are unionized. They have strong legal rights. You know, we have legal rights to collective bargaining that didn't exist in West Virginia. And some people say, well, look, if we did this here in Canada, that we'd be hit with back-to-work legislation, which would impose heavy fines on the union or, or even decertify the union. Uh, so that's an important objection. But, of course, that, that could happen. That could have happened in West Virginia, too. Uh, there was a threat of legal action to end that strike uh, as well. Um, and I'm not saying you know, that in Manitoba we're suddenly about to see a repeat of West Virginia. It's not about what's going to happen tomorrow. The question is the future, right? It's not about whether we're about to see a, a repeat. I think the two things that we should think about are how what we just saw in West Virginia shows that this kind of struggle is possible in an advanced capitalist country. It's not something that only happens in some other part of the world. Um, and it also shows us about what actually wins, right? It shows us that class struggle from below politics are the way forward because they are the politics that really fight to win. And this is not something that's only been seen in the US. Uh, 2004 in British Columbia, there was a really important strike by hospital support workers uh, in the hospital employees union. And uh, the short story there was that they, they went on a legal strike. They, were they, were, they, they got hit by legislation telling them to end the strike and go back to work. But instead of folding and going back to work, they defied the law and continued to strike. And other workers began to walk out on strike to support them. And so it threatened to look like there was an escalation towards a general strike happening, as everybody in BC who was fed up with austerity was rallying to support those those workers. And then they had the rug pulled out from under them by the union officialdom, uh, and the, the whole thing fizzled. Um, but again, that shows that this kind of thing can, can happen in Canada too. And also, I think we need to think about how a lot of people say, well, again, they have it so much worse in the U.S., it's not the same here. But the kind of really harsh austerity that we've seen in the U.S., where education workers are low paid and schools are starved of resources, that is our future if the ruling class here can get away with it. That's what the school system will look like. That's what the rest of the public sector will look like. So we may not be about to see this kind of struggle tomorrow in Canada, but this is not something that's irrelevant to us. Um, one other point 
uh, about class struggle politics is that some people say when you say, well, we're, if we're in favor of class struggle politics, that means ignoring the fight against oppression, like the fight against racism, sexism, heterosexism, and other forms of oppression. Um, sometimes class struggle politics does ignore those things, but it, there's no reason it has to. You can integrate the struggle against different forms of oppression into class struggle politics and have anti-oppression class struggle politics. Um, and something we need to think about is how sometimes these things get pitted against each other. So you get some people who say they're really against oppression, but they believe that if you're really serious about fighting oppression, that means somehow you can't work with ordinary people because they're all contaminated with sexism or racism or heterosexism. Um, and sometimes people even talk about you know, ordinary people as norms or use some other kind of derogatory term. Um, and that's a real dead end, right? Because that isolates anti-oppression radicals from the people that we need to be engaging with. Um, so maybe, you know, Kate may be able to talk a little bit about some more of those issues as they came up in, in West Virginia. But the basic point, again, I want to come back to is that what we saw in West Virginia actually vindicates a politics of class struggle from below. I want to say more briefly a couple of points. Oh, do you want to jump in? Yeah. I just have two points that I think affirm what you're saying. The first is also that I don't think we have to wait for things to get bad for there to be a struggle of this type, and I don't think that's what happened in West Virginia. I think one, what motivated people to take this action or what made people feel like they could win wasn't that things had gotten so bad, you know, that things had gotten bad, but um, was actually that, the, that they really felt like um, there's a teacher shortage in West Virginia and that uh, even if the strike was illegal, uh, that they weren't going to be able to fire or fine all the teachers in West Virginia and they weren't going to be able to be replaced. So a sense of, of sort of power in that way was one of the things that made possible the strike, I think, that and that's important to pay attention to. I don't think it's a situation where things just get bad and then people uh, finally get fed up and start fighting. I think a sense of power is one of the important factors in, in making this kind of thing happen. And the second thing about any oppression, I would go beyond and say it's not just a matter of um, that we can have class struggle politics plus anti-oppression if we put our minds to it. It's also that I think um, certain categories of workers tend to uh, become activated and militant earlier in a in a sort of move toward class-wide struggle for various reasons. And one of the, you know, I think uh, we're seeing that um, women workers particularly uh, are in that category right now. And this is something that's been statistically borne out by sociologists who study it, Beverly Silver comes to mind, um, that, uh, that um, this kind of social reproductive job, public sector workers who are doing this kind of work tend to become radical, radicalized and militant first. And it's not because they're, they tend to be women, it's because women tend to do these kinds of socially productive jobs and work in the public sector. Um, but what that means is that it does give us some opportunity to engage, I think, with questions of gender um, that are sort of already present, right, in the struggles. When I was talking about that Go365 thing, I think that was it. That's a very gendered kind of experience of uh, bodily violation. And it's something that when I told people I was visiting from International Women's Strike, people immediately talked about the sexism involved in both their job and in the response to the struggle. One of the things that the governor had said um, to teachers when they first entered the, the state house was he called them all dumb bunnies, right, which is obviously a really gendered insult. And so one of the reactions to that was that people came wearing bunny ears um, to sort of reclaim the sense of being dumb bunnies. Uh, and I, I think, you know, people did that without necessarily saying that they're feminists or opposed to sexism, right? Thanks. Um, so this, this, um, the, thing, the second thing I want to say, and this is, I'm going to make my other points more briefly, um, is that this struggle in West Virginia shows how working class people are able to organize ourselves instead of being organized from above by union officials or the staff of a non-governmental organization or even being organized by a small number of militant rank and file leaders. What we really saw was was what some people call self-activity and self-organization, right? That this is something that can actually happen in a society like ours today. It's not something only from the past, with people organizing themselves and engaging in the struggle themselves. And that unleashes their participation and their creativity, their commitment, and ultimately their power as nothing else can. Um, and obviously, the kind of self-activity that we saw in West Virginia isn't common, but it, it is possible. Um, and that kind of idea of self-activity and self-organization has been too often lost on the left. 
third, um, I think that what we saw in West Virginia vindicates a particular approach to unions, a strategic approach that's pro-union, but that tries, that advocates militants organizing themselves independently of official union structures and independently of full-time full union officials without dismissing the union or, or rejecting the union. So, you know, at the, at the top of, of unions today, you have a lot of full-time officials and staff, um, and those, that, that layer is a dis distinct social layer that has its own interests. Um, and so there's always the question of how, if you're trying to, you know, be a, a union militant, how you relate to, to that. Um, and the idea that you are absolutely pro-union, but you don't rely on the official, but instead try to organize independently of it, I think is a, a crucial one. I think we saw it vindicated in, in West Virginia, um, the way that activists there, militants, organized to reject the deal uh, when it was unsatisfactory. Um, but they didn't turn their back on the unions. They didn't reject the unions, but they, they rejected what union leaders were, were doing at that time. And that's really different than the approach you usually get here, which is to rely on the union officialdom, um, or maybe if you think it's inadequate, to try to become the union officialdom, right? To try to just get more radicals into those positions um, and not organizing independently of the official unions uh, structures, like not trying to build a network or a caucus of, of militant activists. Um, occasionally you also find on the, on the radical left some people who try to organize workers uh, in a way that ignores the union or is against the union, and that's not very productive. But I think what we saw in West Virginia was neither of those things. Last two points. Um, what, what happened in West Virginia was not spontaneous. It didn't fall from the sky. It didn't just happen. It was organized. Um, somebody who wrote one article about the strike um, said that there were the tireless efforts of a small group of deeply rooted and radical teachers were, were key to the victory. Um, and so I think this affirms the idea that as radicals we need to really dig in and work constructively as organizers for the long haul and that that's really important. Uh, last thing to say is that um, struggles like what happened in West Virginia are obviously struggles within a capitalist society, right, about the conditions that we, that we live with. But they're also important in a different way for people who ultimately aim, like what we really would love to see, what we yearn to see, is an upsurge of mass struggles that would go beyond capitalism and start the transition to a new society. Um, and I think these kinds of struggles are important because they, they build unity, solidarity, and the capacity to fight among, among people. And a, a way of thinking about that, some people use the language of saying that this recompo recomposes the working class. In other words, reorganizes it, building uh, new, new um, ways of overcoming division, overcoming fragmentation, replacing passivity with activity, and so on. So reorganizing the relations among working class people themselves. And the experience of going through a strike like what just happened really changes people. Like it does enormous things to their confidence, um, to their belief in the power of collective action. And for a small number of people, it, it opens them up to the, the revolutionary idea that, that the working class can change society. It doesn't mean they necessarily draw that conclusion, but it opens people up to that idea. So I think West Virginia gives us a taste of what's what we need to, you know, to win victories inside of a capitalist society, but also it gives us a little bit of a sense of, um, you know, what we need to cultivate in order for any future possibility of a break with capitalism to be possible. Um, so again, I just think West Virginia, I, I was so happy. I mean, I was, see, I'm going to cry now. <laughs> um, it's, it's, um, it, was, it was a win that I've been waiting for decades for, you know, um, for all those of us who've been sticking it out on the... Uh, on the far left for a long time. This was a victory for the kind of politics that we usually just talk about, um, for class struggle from below politics. So we should be very, very happy about what happened in West Virginia. Before before I, I, I uh, stop labbing, can I tell you guys one funny story about the David's last point, which is which was um, people being open to socialism, right? But uh, that you have to kind of be um, that doesn't mean open to any 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 old thing, right? Or or it, not not necessarily open to people sort of butting into uh, struggles that they aren't necessarily a part of, was that there was a group of socialists there who were tabling. Actually, only one group of socialists was tabling um, that I saw. 
And at first, you know, at first they were just tabling about socialism, and people were actually pretty interested in talking to them about socialism. And then these these folks fell into the category that David was talking about of people who kind of opposed unions as being, you know, by definition anti-worker. And so they started uh, they started in on that, and that actually pissed people off enough that they were, were picked up and thrown off the out of the state house and off the picket line. So the the lesson there is uh, people might want to talk to you about socialism, but don't. Um, don't uh, don't bash the striker unions and that's probably not a good idea. So David, do you want to give a, a quick or brief rundown of what Bill 64, the attack on the school boards and teachers in Manitoba, I think they're calling it education modernization act what that means for teachers and schools today well there are a number of different parts of the uh, picture part of it is an elimination of elected school boards um, and it's also about creating some new administrative uh, and pseudo participatory structures um, to re replace them uh, along with this goes the uh, centralization that's already underway of collective bargaining between teachers and uh, the new authority being created by the provincial government and uh, also the removal of, of principals and vice principals from the um, the union for teachers the manitoba teachers society so uh, and there's going to be changes to the way that the funding is organized as well so it's just a part of the overall neoliberal so-called reform of public education in Manitoba. Yes. So it seems like a lot of people in Manitoba are pretty upset by this. Um, and there's, you know, already been one honkathon action. I believe there's another one planned for March 31st. Um, looks like people are going to protest, which is all great, but if Manitoba teachers or Manitobans who care about education want to stop this from happening, what would it actually take, in your opinion? That's the crucial question, because <laughs> there's, there's a very wide uh, spread opposition to what's being done. And, you know, from both parents and, and teachers and uh, education workers of other kinds. Uh, and... The question is not, you know, what will it take to make noise? That's obviously a good starting point. But this is a provincial government that's uh, not going to back down unless they are forced to back down. Simply sending a lot of letters and, uh, you know, making those kinds of, uh, you know, shows of opposition is, is not going to stop this. So I think the real question is, uh, can there be the beginnings of some organizing that takes us towards direct action, uh, you know, real withdrawal of labor by teachers and other education workers with the support of other people in the in society to try to actually block what the uh, the government is doing to create a political crisis for the provincial government that will make them think twice. And, you know, this is not something that uh, is, would be easy to do, but I think that there's never been a greater possibility for some unconventional organizing to happen because we have this clear attack and the, you know, very strong opposition, but you have the, the leaders of the Manitoba Teachers Society and of the unions that represent support workers, mainly CUPE, uh, showing no signs of actually mounting effective opposition. And so the question is whether we'll start seeing some people who are working in the education system start to organize themselves independently of the official union structures, the same way as people did in Virginia and also in a number of other U.S. states as part of the so-called red state revolt uh, by teachers and in some cases uh, other education workers as well. I think that's the real question. Will people begin to organize themselves to build momentum towards something that goes beyond uh, token opposition and using the official channels to register opposition? Yes, because we're, we're teachers to, to strike or, or withhold labor here. That would be technically illegal, right? It would be wildcat wildcat action strike. Well, 
is is not yeah not just uh, a wildcat <laughs> in the sense that most people know because you know normally unionized workers who have the right to strike if they strike during their contract then it's a wildcat. Teachers in Manitoba gave up the right to strike in 1956, so they they don't have the right to strike at all at any time for anything. Uh, it's one of the last parts of Canada where teachers do not have any right to strike, and so yeah, uh, all teachers are members of MTTS, but their collective bargaining is always dealt with through binding arbitration. So uh, any form of uh, strike action would be against the law that regulates them. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot that can be won from doing it, as we heard in that recording, right? That the it can be successful. That's the way to win if, if you really want to, right? Absolutely. And in fact, if you look at the history of teachers' unions, teachers won the right to collectively bargain and strike in most in many cases uh, by actually doing things that were outside the law. Uh, and so I'm not making any predictions about what's going to happen, but you know there are, there are lots of ways in which people can organize themselves and with enough support uh, take action that does contravene the law. Uh, it's maybe worth mentioning here in Ontario in 1997, there was a uh, very uh, large strike by teachers against very similar kind of legislation that the Harris uh, conservative government was bringing in at the time. And they called it when they went on strike. This was actually organized by the teachers unions themselves. There were five of them at the time. Uh, and they went out all together in 1997. And they said what they were doing was not a strike, but a political protest. And actually, uh, when it went before, I believe it was a uh, either a judge or at the labor board, I don't remember which, uh, it was actually uh, upheld to not be a strike uh, because the I think the, the context was such that, uh, you know, it influenced that ruling. So, again, without making any predictions, I'm just saying that in a situation where there's enormous public opposition mm-hmm. and something happens that you might think would clearly be struck down, you know, or ordered to end because it was contravening the law, it doesn't always happen that way. Uh, we need to be, you know, aware of those kinds of possible surprises. And again, you can't go from zero to a strike uh, overnight. Uh, you know, this is teachers have never been on strike in Manitoba, so um, it, it's going to take some organizing to move towards it. And there are all sorts of things that could be done to to escalate um, and uh, build resolve and and unity across. You know, not just and not just among teachers, but between teachers and education support workers. Uh, but that's the road that needs to be taken. And I, I certainly hope that some people begin to organize themselves. Who knows? Maybe secret Facebook groups like the way it was done in West Virginia and some other I parts of the so. U.S. I hope so because it really does seem like in the I haven't lived in Winnipeg a long time, but that with COVID, especially teachers are rightfully upset by a million things and i don't know this could be the last straw for a bunch of people that's what i've been wondering too because you're absolutely right given what teachers have had to work through uh during the pandemic with inadequate you know protection inadequate uh improvements to their buildings and uh and so on yeah they're already strained so this is just adding insult to injury yeah, and it does seem, you know, I don't have any data to back this. And I, you know, I've been isolated in my home for most of the winter. But um, in my involvement with different groups in Winnipeg, uh, it seems as though there is a lot of public support for teachers right now. Um, and that the majority doesn't support uh, what the PCs are, are doing right now and, and kind of don't buy their their reasoning behind it, you know? Yeah, this is a government without a great deal of uh, public support to draw on in most parts of the province at the moment. You know, they're already quite unpopular in many places. And yeah, they could, you know, if teachers and education workers start to to really uh, organize a serious response, it could become a lightning rod that draws all sorts of you know opposition to the government uh, towards it, right? People who are upset because of the appalling conditions that were allowed to develop in the long-term care facilities that led to so many deaths from COVID-19. People were upset about, you know, other things that the provincial government's been doing. Uh, but we haven't, you know, we haven't seen a big fight back, even around, you know, there was some fight back around hospital closings and and so on. But, uh, you know, the full potential of a fight back has not been tapped. And it's 
possible that teachers and education workers could really begin to be the, you know, the people that everyone else rallies around who wants to take on this government. Definitely. Definitely. Um, because I was also thinking about, you know, usually the the tactics of breaking teacher strikes. Um, this is very common in Ontario where I'm from and most places I imagine that, you know, it's framed as it's an attack on students, the poor students. It's unfair to students to have the, the teachers leave and it's unfair to, to parents. But I think also the fact that it, it seems as though a lot of parents don't want to see their school boards amalgamated, um, that that line of attack might not be successful or something to happen. Right. It's really different than a teacher strike over wages or working conditions in a narrow, a narrower sense. As, and, you know, there are a lot of people uh, who are really aware that the amalgamation of school divisions in Winnipeg, for example, uh, could threaten some of the better elements of the public education system that have been carved out for Indigenous people um, in terms of other, you know, equity initiatives and um, more interesting positive things that have been done in, in certain divisions. All of these kinds of things could be threatened by the uh, the amalgamation and centralization that uh, is being planned, which is precisely to try to make it easier for the provincial government to control uh, and direct what goes on uh, in, the, in the school system. Definitely. Yeah, well, I, I for one, hope, hope that this bill backfires on them. Um, and I want to express my solidarity with, with teachers and education workers. Is there anything else you want to say, David, about this? No, I, I mean, I, I echo that. And I think um, we just offer this episode to people in the hope that it will inspire uh, and encourage people to think about how they can take this resistance into their own hands. <laughs>